page 37. And uh, we're going to just skim the book of Revelation. If you want me to do a verse-by-verse -verse exposition, come back in about 50 years' time <laughs> when it's all happened. Because <laughs> I'm not going to do that, and, and, but I'm going to pick on certain things. Certain things are clear to me, and many things are still fuzzy. But uh, I want us just to, I've already referred to chapter two and three, and um, that deals with the, I believe, seven current churches which were in existence. And, but, but do notice what it says, that uh, uh, it says in chapter four, come up here, and I will show you things which, much, which must take place after this. So that clearly fixes the fact that this is the future. And as this revelation is being given somewhere around about AD 95, this has got to be something future beyond AD 95. To me, that's so obvious. Amen? And uh, as I said before the break, the first chapter just spends most of its time in worship saying, okay, guys, it looks pretty tough on earth, but get into the heavenly realm and just soak yourself in the total victory of heaven, and then you can deal with earth and its needs in the right way. Um, I want us to come to chapter 5, because I think this is one of the bits that I do, I do understand. I want you to come to, 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 to Revelation chapter 5. And after the living creatures in chapter 4 have worshipped and gloried, and uh, marveled at him who sits on the throne, and they've cast their crowns before him and said, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders came to, said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and, on the, and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns which is symbolic of all power and all authority seven eyes which is symbolic of knowing all things which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, and they sang a new song. Now I want to get the picture of what's happening here. And to, to understand this, we need to go back to Leviticus 25 and trace through the, new te the, through the whole Bible the, the theme of the kinsman redeemer. I'm not going to go and look at all the scriptures, but I'm just going to give you the picture. If you go to Leviticus 25, it sets out the principles. And as we saw yesterday, principles in the Old Testament have a continuousness about them. And the principle here was that when a slave got himself into debt, when a, a person, a man, got himself into debt and sold himself as a slave, then there was a there was a two things happened. There was a time period fixed when his liberty would come. But in addition to that, there was at the time of his enslavement, there was a redemption document written which wrote out the terms and conditions of redemption. In other words, he couldn't remain a slave permanently if if two things could happen. Number one, that a close blood relative was willing and able to come and redeem him. And that, that redeemer had to be a blood relative. And secondly, he had to be able to pay the redemption price. So that if someone could come to any slave owner and say, look, that particular slave, he's my brother, and, and, and I've got the ability to pay off the redemption deed, so today I'm going to pay the price and he's going to go free, the slave owner could not resist him. That's the first principle. The second principle was that if he lost land and property, and that was sold to someone else. It was temporarily theirs until there was a day when it could be redeemed. In other words, God's plan was that always he'd given to a person uh, an in, a freedom of their own and he'd given to them an inheritance of their own, which they could not permanently lose. If there was no redemption, then on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, it was returned to them anyway. The slaves went free and their property came back to them. But if, if land and property was lost, then at the time that the land and property was lost, a redemption deed was written out. It was written on a scroll. Two copies were made. One was put into a, 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 a sealed container which would stand the test of time, some kind of earthenware pot with a covering over it, and it was normally buried in a location of the actual site so it could be found at any time were, was anybody able to come and pay the redemption price? The second copy of the same document was put into the hands of the local judge and it ought to be there for anybody to come and ask for it any time if they were able to pay the redemption price. Now you read about this in Leviticus chapter 25. You read about its outworking, for example, in the book of Jeremiah when, when Israel, is, when Judah is about to go into captivity, uh, then... Um, Jeremiah is told to go and buy land and, and, and he's to put, you know, put the pot with the title deed in it. In other words, to say, look, although it looks hopeless, there's a day coming when you're going to be able to redeem this land. So you better have the redemption document ready so you know how to be able to redeem it. You find in the book of, of Ruth, where Boaz and Ruth, where uh, Naomi lost her inheritance, went into Moab, came back with Ruth, how Boaz 
her as a close relative was able to buy her and also to buy the property which was lost and to restore her to her inheritance. So there's a theme running right through scripture, all right? Now, the, 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 in order to be able to redeem that lost property or to redeem the slave who'd lost his liberty, it had to be a close blood relative and he had to be able to pay the redemption price. And what we're seeing here is one of the other outworkings of the cross, because Jesus not only died on the cross to deliver us from our slavery as sinners, he also, at the cross, paid the redemption price for the whole of physical creation. Man not only lost his freedom when he sinned, he also lost his inheritance. And the whole earth became the devil's property by his sin and by his default. And not only did he become a slave, but he also lost his inheritance. And Jesus not only dealt with our sin at the cross, he dealt with our lost inheritance at the cross. And so what we're seeing here enacted is the lamb that was slain, the only one, if you like, because as John looked and saw there the title deed to the whole earth, because that's what was in the hands of the almighty judge God sitting on the throne, was the redemption document. If only someone could come who qualified, because someone in heaven couldn't qualify, because they were, it had to be a man. It had to be a blood relative of Adam who lost the inheritance. And so we find emphasis here that it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, it's the root of David. So we're having, if you like, the human uh, line of Jesus being emphasized here because he's got to do this as a blood relative of the one who lost everything. When Jesus went to the waters of baptism to be baptized of John the Baptist, by baptism, he was immersed and identified with the Adamic race. In that river of Jordan at that time, everyone was going to get their sins washed away, and he was plunged into that river of sin to become the sin bearer of the whole of Adam's race. But also, it was a, it was a, I feel like it was the beginning of a marriage ceremony. And God was saying to his son, will you marry fallen Adam? Will you marry the human race? Will you make that race your bride, and will you confer upon her all the inheritance and all the rights which he said oh father I will so he married if you like into the family by baptism does that make sense to you and when we're baptized into Christ we're completing the marriage ceremony as well as dealing with sin and these other things also we're, we're being asked would you have Jesus to be your lawfully wedded husband Will you marry him and, 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 and will you love him and, and serve him as a, oh Lord, I will. So that completes the marriage ceremony. Have you got the picture here? And so here's the lamb that had been slain and John is looking at this title deed to all of creation and if only there was someone who had the legal right to take the document and also had the ability and power to pay the redemption price, then the whole of physical creation could be taken back from the hands of the devil and given back to man. And this is the moment when it's being enacted. So he takes the scroll, and, and let's just read those words again. Verse 4, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open, 
and to read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then he took the scroll and there was great, and it was the slain lamb that took the scroll. And then in verse nine, they began to sing a new song. For you are worthy to take the scroll or to take the book and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and literally and have made us to be a kingdom, not kings. It's not individually kings, but we are made corporately to be a kingdom. That's what it literally says. We're not individually kings. We are corporately the kingdom. He's the king. And he's the, only, and he's the only king there is. Amen. But he's made us to be a kingdom and a priesthood to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Hallelujah. In other words, the time's come now to establish that reign because God's got his kinsman. He's got his kinsman redeemer. And, and in his um, identification with the human race through his being born a Jew and of the Jewish heritage and of, of the tribe of Judah. He now qualifies in terms, he's not of heaven, he's not under the earth, but he's of that human race. But unlike any other member of the human race, he's without sin and without debt himself. But he has, in the power of the blood which he poured out at Calvary, he has the power to pay the full redemption price. And so all of creation is now back in his hands and it's rightfully his. And now he's stepping onto the stage to take ownership of all that. Hallelujah. And they sang a new song. And it was every tribe and kindred and nation. He redeemed us by his blood to be part of the kingdom. But his blood also bought back every square inch of all of physical creation, and none of it now belongs to the devil. He is absolutely, totally ceased in any way and in any sense to be the prince of this world. It's not his, and if he goes on masquerading as the owner, it's a lie. And we can call his bluff, and we can say, it ain't yours anymore. Amen? And we become, as it says so clearly, we become joint heirs with him. And so the church is now commissioned to go and take possession of that which is ours. I mean, just imagine, just imagine some of you, um, I don't, I'm trying to think of a decent illustration, but let's imagine that uh, you've lived for years in Colorado and you've got uh, you know, a farm down here in Texas, a family inheritance of hundreds of thousands of acres and and you come back to your inheritance after many, many years to find that there's some people illegally sitting on your land. But you have the clear title deed to the land. It's yours. They've no right to be there. Now, you may have to go to court to settle the issue, but then you can now come with the appropriate authority to enforce the, the legality of your position. Now, this is going back again to where we were in Luke 18 yesterday. Amen? If you're not sure of your title deed, you're not going to be able to present a convincing case. Amen? 
And this is so important to see this, that this is how the whole recovery of everything begins. It begins with a declaration that everything that needs to be paid for to redeem men from their sin and to redeem the whole of creation, all that God has made from the hands of the devil, it's already been paid for. So there's not a plant, there's not a bird, there's not a square inch of soil, there's not a human being, there's nothing in all of creation that, that became part of the curse that has not been redeemed from the curse by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And we've been called and raised up to be a kingdom and a priesthood to our God. We are the, if you like, we're the enforcement officers of the rule and reign of the king. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment, you'll find that in the first 15 verses of Ephesians 1, it spends all its time on telling us of the amazing, incredible inheritance that we have in him. And that's so incredible that we could spend a week just on those few verses. It's absolutely staggering what he's given us in him. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but oh, so much. Then you come to verse 17, where then something else is introduced, that not only do we have an inheritance in him, but he has an inheritance in us. And we are the vehicle by which he's going to recover and enter into his inheritance, which is to be the undisputed, uh, glorious ruler of everything in all of creation. Now, that's his inheritance. We are his inheritance in the sense that we have become his family, we become his friends, we become uh, his kingdom, and we become his priesthood. That's all true, but, but there are purpose. Our purpose now and our passion is not only to get our inheritance so we can be blessed, but to work together with the Holy Spirit to bring Jesus into his inheritance. Amen. And that's, that's, that's the language changes in verse 17 of, of Ephesians chapter 1. And now we're told that the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead, could, the purpose of it working in us is working in us to that end. And when the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is able to flow with us, flow into us and through us without restriction, I mean, let's just look at it just for a moment. At the end of verse 18, that you, that, that, that you might know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us, or more literally, into us who believe. Into us and then out from us. When we're filled with all that power of the resurrection, then we've got something that will flow out of us. Jesus said in John 7, if you drink and, and you believe in how big I am and drink of all the resources that I've made available to you, then as a result of drinking and believing, rivers are going to flow out of you. And then we become the, the means of bringing him into his glorious inheritance. And this is the language that we now begin to see working in Revelation, okay? So that's one chapter I do understand. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? 
And they, they, they said with a loud voice, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all them that are in them, I heard saying, all oh, that day's coming, beloved, blessed, blessing and honor and glory and power be him to who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard the four living creatures say, come and see. And behold, I, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown which was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer and then I heard a second voice say come and see and then we could start to get into all this uh, mystery of the revelation he was granted to him to, to take peace to wage war and then that's where I begin to get into a little bit of confusion and, and secondly I haven't got the time to go into it all but we find that then breaking the seven seals are the steps which are taken to bring about the end of Satan's rule and kingdom on earth. And I'm just going to, you find that in chapter 7, we get the uh, 144,000 marked. And I see that as, a, as an allegorical number. And in addition to them, there's a great multitude, verse 8, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And then, as he begins to open these seals, the, 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 the implementing of taking over all of creation and bringing it into the hands of God begins to take place. Now, I want to just move on because I really don't intend to make this a study of the book of Revelation because I, this is not my purpose and secondly there's lots of books written about it none of which that I've found yet seem to have all the answers but some of them have some of the answers and I believe as I've said so many times before a lot of this is going to be made clear when it happens just like just like it was with the first coming of Jesus the only thing they got right about Jesus' first coming was that he was going to be born in Bethlehem you read it he said, when Herod wanted to kill this child, I said, Where's he, where was he born? He said, oh, in Bethlehem. But what was weird was that no one knew any longer that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because he'd lived all his life in Nazareth, so he was called the Nazarene. And Jesus never bothered to tell them. That's what I find so interesting. So when he did all these mighty miracles and did all these amazing works, they said, this ain't the prophet because no prophet comes out of Nazareth. So they're clinging to this ridiculous proof text, which actually is a faulty proof text. And avoiding all the visible evidence before their eyes saying, this is the Messiah. Oh no, I've got my proof text. And they missed him. So let's be careful, beloved. Amen. I'd hate to miss all this because I've got my proof text which may not even be a sound proof text. Amen? And when Jesus came and fulfilled all these scriptures, what amazes me is that they still couldn't see it. As all the scriptures began to unfold, and we're going to look at this later, because there, there is 
I, it, the only explanation, there's been a deliberate withholding in order to bring the Gentiles in, which is what the Bible says. Once that veil is taken away, suddenly a lot, a lot of God's original precious people, his own nation, the Jews, they're going to have their eyes up and they're going to see. And some tremendous things are going to happen and we better be ready against those days. Let's move on to Revelation chapter 11. And there we find that when all this is complete, that we're told this. You will go back to heaven, we start worshipping again. And all kinds of dreadful things happen, and I'm still trying to understand what's literal and what's allegorical. You find occurring again and again and again this particular time period you find coming in chapter 11 chapter 12 chapter 13 you find it coming again and again it's either written as 42 months it's written as three and a half years it's sometimes written as 1260 days and if you multiply a 30 month a 30 day month by 42 it comes to 1260 if you take 42 months and divided into years, it becomes three and a half years. So it's really saying the same thing in different ways. And this comes again and again, right through 11, right through 12, right through 13. And I'm still wondering what it means. It's referred to back in um, uh, the book of Daniel. But I'm going to spend a few moments on that in a moment. But in chapter 11, we get this great declaration towards the end of the chapter. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell down on their faces and worshipped God and said, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you've taken of your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. Now a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head was a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain and gave birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child. Now, interestingly, it says in verse 5, and in fact, all these, it uses not the word for a baby, although it's translated child in the New King James. It actually, the word, in particularly in verse 5, is the word huios, which is a grown-up, adult, mature son. So she's giving birth to a man. Now, if you go back to John chapter 16, one of the things Jesus says as he's about to go to the cross is he says, when a woman is in travail, she has pain and, and sorrow, but, but her sorrow is turned to joy 
because a man-child, the same phrase exactly, a grown-up adult man-child is given birth. And, and I've taught this of how what was happening from the moment he was taken down from the cross to resurrection morning, that there was some travail going on in the spirit realm to give birth to this whole new glorious genealogy and race of men. I'm just pondering whether this is just a flashback to that, to remind us of that. I'm just pondering this. I really don't have the answer. But, but what, it, what we see is that there's this red dragon waiting to devour her. It either means that there's another giving birth to a particular generation of, 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 of Christians who live in the power of the risen new man. I can see it either way. You hear what I'm saying here? It's either a repeat of, it's not, in other words, that at this time, it's going, God's going to give birth to a generation of the church which lives in the power of the huios, sonship of God. And there's, and the red dragon is obvious from verse, from chapter, although you hear all kinds of uh, interpretations, one guy that's convinced to show us that all these happened, uh, you know, in the battle of the early church with the Romans, that, the, that many of the Roman legions carried a red dragon as their emblem. So this was the Roman legions waiting to kill the church before it really got going. Some see the, the fact that the you know, eagle was the emblem of some of the legions, that, that the eagles were there. But I, I freely feel this is totally wrong because the, the Bible explains itself most of the time. And we're told in Revelation 20 that this red dragon is the old devil, Satan. And when he's, and, and when he's taken and thrown into the bottom of the spit, that's who he's called. So there's all kinds of interpretations about what are the seven heads, what are the ten kingdoms, and you can go and read it all. I'm not going to read it all now, and I've read it all several times in several different versions, and I'm still as confused as ever. You can make it fit by pushing it with a shoehorn into, and, and there's all kinds of different interpretations. And frankly, I'm just left completely unconvinced about the validity and this, or let me rephrase that. I'm, I'm not convinced about the certainty of any of them. I'm just left with a question mark. Some, I, I think, no, that's not true. Others, well, maybe, but I'm not sure. But I've, there's nothing that is convincing. You can't say that's the truth. You cannot say that's what's going to happen. So I'm left with these various speculative possible explanations to this. Well, one day, we're going to see. So in about... 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time, we'll come back and say, well, let me really show you what all this means. You say, well, you don't need to because we've seen it with our own eyes. It's happened. Some schools, um, like the, the Reformation historians, see the Pope as the dragon, the red dragon. The pre-terrorists, the ones that see it, they see it as the Roman Legions. There's all kinds of theories about this, but none of them convince me totally, although I, I read them all with respect and I read them all with prayer. I'm not trying to be uh, cynical or nasty. I'm simply saying that I don't feel anything, any of it is absolutely convincing. Now, just one thing I want to mention here is to do with these 126, 1,260 days, these 42 months, 
the three and a half years, which comes again and again. Now, you'll find that, that, that when we come to... Um, uh, let me just make sure I, I've lost myself. Hold on a moment. Now, that's okay. We can do it here. Um, you, you go, if, you, what you want, if you go back to um, Daniel chapter 9 for a moment, let's go there. We can do it here, and, and it, it will be just as good. And here we're talking, we're going to deal with this probably in the next session when we deal with the 70 weeks of Daniel, but it's, it's something that is relevant here. And here in Daniel chapter 9, he, he tells us, verse 24, that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make, it's got six things down here, to, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So there's six things here. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets will be built again and the walls in troublesome times. In other words, we've got a period of 62 weeks with seven weeks. Now the point I'm making here, because we're going to go into this later, is that, that the actual word that's used in the Hebrew is not a week, it's, it's seven. So what we're being told is that it's 62 sevens and it's seven sevens and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of, I believe, valid interpretation that these days become prophetic years. And there's a lot of evidence of this again and again in other parts of Scripture. And we're going to look at that later on today, this afternoon, when we look at you know, the last week of Daniel and those other particular events. But I'm just raising it here because I want us to see if we can possibly guess at what the 1,260 is. So come back now to Revelation chapter 12, 13, or 11. It's in all these three chapters. It starts off in um, Revelation 11, verse 2. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That is, the Gentiles will. The Gentiles will tread the holy city the whole, underfoot for 42 months, which is also 1,260 days, or it's also three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, as you look at all this, um, and then you come on into chapter 12, and it, start, it talks about it again, and uh, it says it again in chapter 13, using any one of these three things, the three and a half years, the 42 months, or the 1,260 days. And there are various opinions about this. Now, what I want to just suggest here is that, that there is... I, what surprised me as I did my research was how soon Islam became a power to take over the world. It actually dates back to the beginning of the 6th century and its absolutely declared purpose is it's going to take over the world. Now by the year 633, uh, the, the, the great empires of 
of Islam were now taking over vast amounts of the world. And by 633, they'd already occupied and taken possession of Jerusalem. I didn't know that until a few months ago. And there are certain events, three events, one is 633, one is 638, and the actual dome of the mosque, which now towers over the former site of the temple in Jerusalem, that dome of the mosque was completed in 707 uh, AD, as long ago as that. I never knew it had been there that long. Now, if you take 707 and add it to... 1,260, what number do you come out with? The answer is 1967. Amen? Now, in, so, and there were three events in, in 633, in 638, and 707, which, which are all events when Islam came and took that city, and it was probably completed when they finished the Dome of the Mosque in 707 BC. So we're told that Jerusalem is going to be trodden down of the Gentiles until 1,260 years have gone by. So if you go from 707 to 1967, you've got exactly that period of time in years. What happened in 1967? The Six-Day War. What happened in the Six-Day War? Well, Jerusalem, which even then, although it had been partly occupied by the Jews in 1947, the eastern part of Jerusalem was under the government of Jordan until the Six-Day War, when for the first time, for 1,260 years, the Jews had possession of the whole city. Now, that, I think, is quite remarkable. And if you start doing it, I mean, I could, I mean, I'm really getting into this. If you start doing all these maths, I could spend the rest of my life on all this stuff. And I, I'm just dropping these things out to say there's something about the way God controls things which he can predict it to the very day. And so maybe these are the things which are being talked about here. So probably the, the dragon and the prophet and the beast which is mentioned so fiercely in all these chapters is nothing more than the militancy of Islam to take over the world and the battle that's gone on between the, the, the true kingdom of God and Islam and is, that's why I see things coming to a climax right now. Can you hear what I'm saying here? Now, some of it is a little bit speculative but so, on the other hand, some of these things are so amazing that you begin to think, well, you know, this is possibly where we are. And that the the showdown that is mentioned in other places could be pretty well any time now. You've probably just heard this morning that the present Prime Minister of Israel has decided to evacuate the Gaza Strip. And already this violent rebellion amongst his own government about such a move and how on earth you suddenly get many, many thousands of Jews to relocate. I mean, the, the whole situation, the more they try and solve it, the worse it gets. And it only takes, uh, you know, it could well be that the more moderate government is replaced by a more fanatical government because they're not going to give anything away. If you read the Israeli policy of Kerry, if he was to get in power, it's absolutely frightening. Amen? Now, these, these, are, happen these are things that are happening right now 
And in a few weeks or a few months, things could dramatically change and precipitate a process which could bring things rapidly, rapidly to conclusion. I just sense this, and I sense that we are at a time when, when we've got to pray, we've got to rule, and where at the same time God is, is inexorably working out his purpose, and all you need to do is, when you get a bit scared, is to go up into heaven <laughs> and just bathe in the utter glorious, victorious supremacy of heaven. And what's going on down earth sort of gets a bit in perspective. And yet at the same time, we are, I believe, players on the stage of these events, and we need to know and understand our role. And I'm not here to peddle some quick, fixed solution which isn't valid or true. But it was interesting how Daniel set himself to understand the times and the days, and when he did that, Gabriel started to come to him to give him explanation, but at the same time said it's shut up until the end of the until the end. Although I'm telling you what's happening, you won't understand it till the end. And so we've got to keep a humility here, and yet a, a sense of urgency here, which I think is the right balance of scripture. As you go on through the book of of, of Revelation, and uh, you get this. In chapter 14, you get this powerful army riding out. I mean, and I, I don't know, I, I'm not going to spend time on it. Um, I'm just going to come on to chapter 17 and 18, where we find that finally Babylon gets dealt with. Now, to the, histori his the traditional historicists, Babylon is, is, the, is the Roman Catholic Church. I believe it's more than that. And I want to try and give you a summary of what I believe Babylon to be, because if you read about it, it's not only religious, but it's the merchants of the world. Uh, they've, they've committed fornication with uh, Babylon. I, I, and, and there's a great book you might like to read. It's a famous historic book written by a guy called Hislop, called The Two Babylons. And he does a lot to explain the mystery of this whole matter. But it, it's, it's such a subject in itself, you could spend a week just on this one thing. But I just want to give you a summary of Babylon, which is, this is my definition, it's, it's that world system which is characterized by its intellectual attitude, its political agenda, its religious beliefs and its economic system. So they're the, they're the four things. Its intellectual attitude, its political attitudes, its religious beliefs and its economic system. This is what makes up Babylon and it acts and it lives out these things in, it lives and acts out these things in the defiance of Christ's rule. That, that's the phrase I want to put in there. It's, in other words, it's, it's all these four things. It's intellectual attitude, it's political, whatever I said, I said it better a moment ago. Sorry? 
Anyway, it, it's the intellectual, it's the political, it's the religious, and it's the economic. It's all these facets of life. And they've come together to form a philosophy and activity called Babylon, which has got all the world rulers and all the main businessmen and all the world systems basically on board. And it lives in defiant rebellion against the rule of Jesus Christ. Now that's Babylon. And many have made themselves rich and many of them have lived in luxury because they've served to some degree this system. And they like it the way it is because for them it's a very comfortable, luxurious way of living. But God's going to suddenly come and destroy the whole thing. And I don't think America is going to be insulated from that by any means. And I don't know quite what it's going to mean and I, I'm sort of more or less prepared for anything. I don't know when it's going to happen. But I don't think we're going to go along much longer as we are because the, the, the controlling power of, of the, the world system of which the United States of America is an integral part, the European Union is an integral part, and the, the Arab OPEC and the Arab world is an integral part. They're all in this thing to make up this system which is called Babylon. Now, the religious systems of, of the Catholic Church and Islam are an integral part of this, more than any other religious system. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to find one day that they do a secret deal in order to become more influential and powerful on the face of the earth. It wouldn't surprise me at all. You think, well, how on earth could Catholicism marry Islam? Well, it's easy if you're prepared to change your beliefs to fit in to some sort of compromise between you. If you're sent on world conquest rather than a particular idealism, then you can change. I mean, our politicians do this all the time. They'll say whatever is convenient in order to come to power. Some will. Some live by principles. And it, it seems obvious to me, they say, look, we don't want to be fighting each other. Let's work together to take over the world. Between us, we can do it. We're just about have control. And that little evangelical Christianity thing, we can soon deal with that when we will break those chains that they keep trying to put on us. This is the world orders taking counsel together. This is Psalm 2 being fulfilled in its, in its fullness. We've never seen a coming together yet. We've almost seen it. I mean, the whole of the United Nations system is utterly and absolutely corrupt. It's all politically appointed and vast sums of money are siphoned off into all kinds of illegal and wrong ways and the same thing is true of the European Union the more or you know these bigger these things get the more utterly corrupt and godless they become amen I presume you do keep an eye on these things because they need our prayers and Bill Clinton is heading and hoping to get the top dog position now, now, come on, this is, this, is, this is our present day news. With Bill running the United Nations and Hillary running the United States of America, just imagine where we will be in possibly four or five years' time if something incredible doesn't happen.
Amen? This is where we are. This is today. This is today's news. And this has been going on for centuries and there's a relentless purpose in the devil's heart and he's, he's, he finds his prophet and he finds his people that he can use and they've got various manifestations in the, in the book of Revelation which I've not yet fully understood. I mean, I can make guesses like everybody else. I can get, it's like, to me, it's like trying to put a, a half inflated rubber boat into a suitcase. Ever tried to do that? <laughs> You push it in, think, think when you've got it in, something pops out. Ever try to do that? Because this is such a picture of trying to make everything fit. You get, oh, I've got it. Oh, oh, no, that bit doesn't fit. Oh, oh, no, that bit doesn't fit. Ever tried to get a half-inflated rubber boat into a suitcase? I did once. That's why it's such a vivid illustration to me. It's, it's a very frustrating experience. Amen. Okay, let's just move on. In chapter 19, we come to the marriage of the Lamb, and we also come to the righteous king finally going to war. And if you read this terrifying picture at the end of Revelation 19, he's reading on from verse 11. Behold, a, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called faithful and true. How different to the Babylonian system. Amen? His name is faithful and true. And he's the one that wins, beloved. Amen? He's the one that destroys everything else, and everything foul and unclean and dirty and horrible, and, and, and it's all taken out of the way. And he that's faithful and true and glorious and wonderful and beautiful. And he, with eyes like a flame of fire, with many crowns on his head, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies of heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he will strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of King of Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now this could be an explanation of what I was talking about yesterday when the vultures gather together for the carcass. He said, come on, there's going to come a day when we're going to, you're going to have the privilege to rip every last vestige of the devil's kingdom and all the dead wickedness of that system. You're going to have the privilege of just eating it all. Because this is the picture which is given here of a, of a bunch of, of vultures gathering together. They, they may, verse 18, they may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men like the flesh of horse, and the, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the, that is the, the power by which they rule and move and have authority. It's symbolic of that. And so on and I, so on and so forth. And, the, and then I saw the, the beast, the kings of the earth, and now is gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who I personally think is the, the spirit and the prophetic spirit behind Islam who works signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast etc. The rest were killed, verse 21, with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on, on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, and maybe this is, this is just a speculative thought that I was praying last night. I'm not teaching this as doctrine. I'm just wondering. But just supposing that you've got two people and living in the same house, husband and wife, two people working in the same place, two believers together. But one of them is living a life whereby he can become a heavenly, powerful member of this heavenly army which takes the nations for God. It's not that he's taken up physically and disappears. He's taken up spiritually to be part of this uh, devouring army which, which rips the devil and his kingdom to pieces and, and, and eats the pieces. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm just wondering if that's it, whether it's not so much a physical thing. It's not suddenly that going to be two people driving in the same car and one disappears. There's going to be two people living together, but one of them has, has qualified to be part of this heavenly army. He doesn't, he doesn't disappear bodily, but he's raised in spirit to be spiritually part of that army. Like, for example, as we start raising up these David's tabernacles all around the place, and certain people get into that ministry and get into the place of prayer, get into the place of warfare and are literally riding with Jesus in the heavenly realm, enforcing the judgments written and enforcing the powerful um, advance of the kingdom. And their husband or maybe their friend, they're just sort of coming to church on Sunday when it fits in with going to play golf or doing the other things that they do. Hear what I'm saying? It could possibly mean that. As I was pondering last night, I said, Lord, I ought to be able to make sense of this. And he said, well, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but I, as I began to fit this together with Revelation 19, it began to make more sense to me than it's ever done before. And I've, I believe that he's gathering together, if you like, a, 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 what's the word I want? A flock, I suppose, of spiritually empowered vultures who know how to devour the devil's kingdom and rip it apart in Jesus' name. And it could be that even in the same house, one partner in this union is after God with all their heart and, and is raised up to be part of that mighty army that's riding with him in the heavenly places. And the other one is still just jogging along in everyday life and isn't really aware or participating in what's going on. One's taken... You know, that is the thought. It's the best explanation I've ever had for myself anyway. And I'm not imposing it on you as doctrine. Okay, let's come to chapter 20. The millennium reign of a thousand years. Now, here in those first five verses, you find this, this phrase, a thousand years, it comes a number of times, I forget how many, is it six times or whatever it is? It comes down to verse 7, it includes verse 7. And as I read this, it comes again in verse 8.
And as I look at this and as I read all the various opinions about the millennium, and we're going to look at this as a subject later on, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But it, 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 what it says is this, that this reign is a thousand years, either literally or figuratively. And during that time, Satan is bound and cast into the bottomless pit for that thousand years and cannot deceive the nations anymore. And the other thing that we're told is that that a certain category of people are raised up. And it says in the end of verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And in verse 7, first in of verse 6, and they shall reign with him a thousand years with Christ. Verse 6, verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth and will gather together those, and, and, and there's going to be many of them deceived, and it will come to the final great showdown. Well, we're going to look at the millennium as a subject this afternoon, so I'm not going to spend any more time, but just, just notice that repeating phrase, the thousand years. Then comes the final conclusion, the new heaven and the new earth. And in that context, New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, notice that New Jerusalem doesn't come into existence. It comes out of heaven. And what we know from the Hebrew letter, and what we know from the Galatian letter, is that New Jerusalem already was in existence when those letters were written. Amen? So New Jerusalem is a heavenly city where, which the apostolic, the prophetic, and the other Ephesian four ministries are called by God to build, and the characteristics of all this are written in chapters 1 and 2 of Zechariah. Abraham saw that if he was going to inherit the whole earth, then he had to occupy a heavenly land in order to gain possession of the earth. That's what God showed him. And the way to occupy the heavenly land was to build heavenly Jerusalem in the heavenly realm, and by so doing, he could clear the heavenly realm of the demonic powers which were producing the canopy of darkness which hangs over our present cities. So I want us just to see a strategy here, which is that if we concentrate, as, as we're clearly empowered to do, to build heavenly Jerusalem in the heavenly realm over the city that we represent, then we change the canopy of influence over the city in which we live. We can actually change that sense of... And you go to some cities, you can feel the strong, oppressive canopy of darkness. Go to Las Vegas, for example. Boy, is it dark there. Go to Atlantic City um, on, the, on the east coast there, which is another gambling casino place. You go to those places and you feel... And all these people coming down in busloads from New York to play these slot machines and hope they're going to get themselves out of their misery, misery of financial need. And you think, this, I want to smash every... I want to smash the whole thing. <laughs> this is America. 
And people are saying now, as they come to San Antonio, it's different now to what it was five or seven years ago because there's a company of people here that are taking hold of God in prayer and they're building heavenly Jerusalem over this place and the atmosphere is changing. Perhaps the most developed manifestation of this will be in Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, where because there's been tens of thousands of people praying for 30 years, they, they've cleared to a large degree the heavens of the demonic powers and the influence is heavenly, not demonic. As we build the heavenly city of Jerusalem, then we then start to live and move under what the Bible calls an open heaven. There's a much greater freer interchange between the angelic and the saints on earth. We have a lot more, you know, the, the veil between heaven and earth gets thinner and thinner and the, the power and presence of God begins to become manifested everywhere. Now that's the intermediate stage, which I think we're to be very, very busy about. But there's a day coming at the end when that heavenly Jerusalem, which we're told in Galatians 4 is the mother of us all, we're told that she is that city, the church, who is the bride of Christ. So the bride of Christ is a city. And it's made up of those, that company of people. And if you go to Zechariah, you can learn the principles in chapter 2 of what needs to be built to make it that kind of city. And it's not my subject. It would take too long. I have taught it um, in other places. Uh, I think I taught it in the Tabernacle of David because it's part of our responsibility to build that environment. But now it's coming out of heaven and now becomes visible on earth. Now, it, it's hard to think of it as literal and physical because if you get the dimensions of it, it's roughly a 1,500-mile cube. If you take the measurements that are given in Revelation, and if you think of a 1,500-mile cube, it's quite a big... There's nowhere to drop that cube. <laughs> if you dropped it on present Jerusalem, it would be bigger than the nation of Israel. It would spread out over into the... I mean, to me, I don't think it's literal. I think it's some kind of figurative picture of something absolutely glorious. And we need to spend more time, and I need to spend more time, perhaps to understand more what it's about. But I'm, I'm more concerned at this present time, as it tells us in Hebrews, it says, you are now come to heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, to, to the angels, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to angels in party dress, they're having a dance, they're just rejoicing. It's, it's, he says you're not to live there in Mount Sinai with all the, the, the law and the, the, the threats and the wrath and the thunder and the misery and oh dear, this is a terrible world and it's getting worse and worse and oh, the devil's so strong. He says no, you get into heavenly Jerusalem, it's very different from there. So finally she comes out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. She doesn't come into existence then. She just comes into manifestation then. And she becomes the great glorious city of the new heaven and of the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just one final point as we close. And, and, and it tells us this. You see, don't think that something magic is going to happen just at that second coming come to verse 7 and 21 he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son 
Notice the relationship. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire, and they're going to have no part in that city. And then he says, come on, I'm going to show you the bride. And he takes us and sees that city. I'm just looking for a particular verse. Come to verse 11 of chapter 22. This is what it says. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Don't think that that sudden instant rapture is going to train, transform worldly unrighteous people into righteous people. It's not going to do that. It says of the bride, she made herself ready against that day. Amen? So there's not going to be some magic transformation. What we are at that day is what we're going to be for the rest of eternity. So we've got the chance now to get ourselves ready. It's, it's not going to suddenly happen by boom, suddenly we're all going to become these perfect, wonderful saints. No, just by going there doesn't transform us. It's by getting hold of God and letting his word and his life grip us that we become the people that will then be comfortable and happy in that environment. Amen? Now, we're going to close for lunch now. And tomorrow, I'm sorry, this afternoon, we're going to look at the, some of these main events which are uh, problems in this second coming of Christ. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to concentrate on the question, what kind of people ought we to be? All right? What do we do and how do we get ourselves ready? And what is God looking for? So whatever happens to be the truth, we're ready. God bless you and have a great lunch. Amen. Have you got anything to say?